Well, I'm going to share a conversation um, that I had um, years ago with a friend. It's probably one that you have heard something similar to, uh, but his, uh, we, were, we were in the midst of a conversation about things of faith, and his response was just really simple, uh, really clear to me. Uh, he said, I don't think a good God would ever send people to hell. And for this friend of mine, uh, it, it was a statement that really got to, his, to the heart of his concern when it came to Christianity. How could, how could Christians claim to, to, that, that God is, is loving while at the same time believe in what we are going to call the traditional view of hell, this, this view of an eternal punishment uh, for those who die apart from Christ? And, and again, maybe you've heard statements like that in your own life. Maybe you've even thought those same questions. You've had those same concerns. You, you find it maybe a, a, a contradiction between what the Bible says about God is love while at the same time seeing what the Bible also says about judgment, what the Bible also says about eternal judgment. And, and that's what we've been turning our eyes or our attention to over the last couple of weeks. We've been looking at this concept of judgment, how, how all of us stand condemned before God and, and need someone desperately to come and save us. This is a, a series that is not primarily for those, again, who are, who are out there, but, but starts with us this morning, with, with those of us who have, have made a commitment to follow Jesus, we can, we can see what God has saved us from. But many Christians are uncomfortable with the doctrine of hell, and some of, them even, some of us even go as far as saying what the late theologian John Wynnum said, the ultimate horror of God's universe is hell. The concept of hell offends our senses. From our perspective, it seems unfair. It doesn't seem to make sense to us, and it can seem like an overreaction from the God of the Bible who, who says, an eye for an eye, who essentially says, the punishment must fit the crime. And so statements like my friend's statement, I, I don't believe that a good God would send people to hell, they're everywhere. They, we, can, we can see them everywhere in our culture. But, but the, the fascinating thing is, uh, I think that these, these statements, like my friends all those years ago, uh, are actually really, really helpful for us because upon examination, they actually reveal to us the fundamental questions that are at the core of this morning's sermon. When we ask this question, and I, I intentionally worded this in a loaded way, in our sermon title, How Can Hell Be Just? When we ask those questions, we're actually asking two questions. Who is God and what is sin? Who is God and what is sin? To put those questions another way, they're really questions about the justice of hell are focused on what God is like and how bad sin really is. What is God like? And, and how bad is sin, really? Statements like my friends, they, they lay all the cards on the table. They make a declaration about what he believes God is like. God may be concerned with his holiness. God may be concerned with his righteousness. But at the end of the day, those concerns are, are overshadowed by his commitment to show love and mercy. My friend's statement also makes a, a, a declaration of what he views sin to be. God obviously doesn't like sin. He's not a, a fan of it. But at the end of the day, it's not the end of the world, is it? After all, everyone sins. Statements about hell fundamentally make a statement about what we believe God is like and what we believe sin to be like. And so we have to ask, are these statements fair? 
Are these statements accurate? More, more importantly, are they biblical? Are they true according to Scripture? Last week, we looked at the biblical doctrine of hell, and we saw what, uh, again, what I'm going to refer to as the traditional view of hell, and we saw hell as an awful place. We saw it as a place of punishment. It's a place of, of judgment for sin, and it is eternal in nature, and this morning, we're going to build on that. We're going to build on that description and ask some vitally important questions. How could hell be just? If you're familiar, we're a part of the Evangelical Free Church of America. That's our denomination. And our denomination's statement of faith includes this. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment, and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth, to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. So every single... Uh, E-free church in the United States signs off on this and, and is supposed to believe in what is described here as eternal conscious punishment. And we can ask ourselves, how is that just? What does that say about God? And so this morning, we're just going to consider that question. We're going we're to look at five statements about things inside of us that can, that can cause us to, to push back at what the Bible says about hell. But before we do that, I want to just look at these two fundamental questions about who God is and what sin is. So I want us to start there this morning. When we talk about the fairness of hell, it's important to remind ourselves of what we have in view. Revelation 20 describes what is awaiting those who face eternal condemnation. It says this, Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. When people question the fairness of hell, they typically have in view what we described last week, what we looked at last week from the Bible. They have in view this eternal conscious punishment of sins for those who are, are, are not covered by the blood of Jesus. One author describing this actually gets at the heart of the question when it comes to the fairness of hell. And he says this, the discussion about the reason for hell pivots on the goodness of God and the sinfulness of humanity. In other words, how good is God and how bad are we? And how we answer those two questions, how good is God, how bad are we, they're radically going to influence our view of punishment, our view of judgment, our view of hell. And these two questions ultimately inform our understanding of God and sin. The author I just quoted, he continues saying this, let me put it another way. I don't think that, it is, that it's the biblical teaching of hell that puts people off. Instead, it's the gospel. People are offended by what the Bible says about what our sin is and what it deserves in light of God's character. I realize this is a radical thought, but hell is not nearly as offensive as God's holiness, his goodness, and his love for his own glory. 
In other words, what, we're, what we need to, to, to look at is, is how do we define sin? Is it, is it just this bad thing? It's, it's not as awful as, as things you, you could be doing. I mean, because just, just look around. Look at other people. Is, is sin just something that, that we need to just avoid? But again, at the end of the day, boys will be boys, right? If we define sin and the awfulness of sin by comparing our sin to the sins of those who are around us, then of course we are going to see, sin, see hell as, as unfair or unjust. After all, how, how could I be condemned to hell for a couple character flaws, a couple bad habits in my life? At the same time, how good is God really? Is he, is he good just like, you know, that, that really, my favorite uncle? He, he's really kind. He's really nice. He's, he's like the best grandfather I could ever have. Is God good, like the most moral person out there that I've ever met? He treats everyone with respect, everyone with, uh, with kindness, and, and he's always doing the, the right thing. If we, if we define goodness by using pictures of goodness in our culture, then of course hell is going to seem like an overreaction. Isn't the, the willingness to overlook a few slip-ups and a few mistakes at the very definition of what we in our culture would consider to be good? These questions are fundamental, fundamental to our understanding of hell. So let me give two brief examples of how answering these questions differently will lead to drastically different understandings, different conclusions about hell, about those who die apart, apart from Christ. The first one is, is called universalism. Universalism is the belief that all people will be saved. And part of this is simply cultural. The last couple of weeks, we've looked at what our culture oftentimes believes about the end of, of humanity, the end of times, uh, the, the eternal fate of humanity. We've seen that, that most Americans still believe that hell exists, and the va- excuse me, heaven exists, and, and the vast majority of Americans who believe that heaven exists, believe that they will be found there someday. Culturally, we believe that heaven is some sort of birthright. It's the inheritance of people, who, of, of all people, unless we do something really, really bad, to lose it, to forfeit our birthright. In the past couple decades, we've seen a form of universalism actually crop up in the church. People try to defend it from Scripture itself. And in, in recent years, um, this has been popularized by Rob Bell and his book, Love Wins. Maybe you've heard of that book. It came out, uh, I think, 2011, 2012, something, something around that uh, time frame. Now, Rob Bell doesn't come out and say it in his book that he's a universalist, uh, but his, his book essentially argues what the title claims, Love Wins. That God's love is so overpowering that eventually love will win. Now, Bell and, and others argue for what is called post-mortem universalism or after-death universalism. This is the belief that because God is love and because God is, is so loving and his love is, is so irresistible that eventually it will wear down even the hardest heart. That the reason why hell exists is because some people do not like God, they do not like his love, and it is hell for them to experience God's love. But eventually, they'll come around. Eventually, as they experience God's love, they will repent. And they'll embrace that love. Even if it takes millions of years, eventually everyone will come to repentance and faith in Jesus because 
love wins. This is a view of universalism, and what does this, what does this view say about God and sin? Well, for one, uh, and we can just kind of put this off on the shelf, uh, it, it doesn't take what the Bible says about eternal punishment very seriously, but, but concerning God and, and sin, it minimizes the severity of sin in God's eyes. It overemphasizes God's love to the point where it actually cancels out every other thing the Bible says about who God is and what God is like. And from here, it, it leads to some very creative, very wrong interpretations of the Bible to reach these conclusions. That love is so irresistible that everyone will eventually come to faith in Jesus. The second alternative is uh, something that's it's a little more respectable. It's actually a lot more common among uh, evangelicals, those who hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. It's called annihilationism. Annihilationism is, uh, some, uh, is this belief that those who die apart from Christ are punished for a period of time before they eventually cease to exist. They, they are annihilated. They, they just disappear. Their consciousness is gone forever. So the punishment may not be conscious for eternity, according to this view, but it is effective for eternity. You understand the, the difference there? So as I said, there are people who desire to be faithful to Scripture, and they've reached this conclusion. John Stott, if you're familiar with that name, a, a beloved evangelical who died, I think, last year, held to this view of the end times. This is something that can't be said uh, about universalism. But even annihilationism has, has a few falls in its inter, uh, flaws in its interpretation of Scripture, and even more importantly, at least in, in order of these questions, these questions about who God is and, and what is sin like, it, it seems to both minimize God's greatness and minimize the awfulness of sin in his eyes. And we're going to look at those here in a few moments. You see how different ways to answer the question of who God is and what sin is like will lead to drastically different opinions on what will happen in the end. Now, the Bible is, is filled with descriptions of what God is like, of, of what he uh, acts like, what, what, he, um, what his, his character is like, and, and all of these statements are true. All these statements in the Bible are, are good and they're important, but I, I just want you to imagine for a second that if you had a chance to, to talk with God, and you said, hey God, how would you describe yourself to me? How would God, if he had the chance, describe himself with his own words? What do you think he would say? Well, the Bible actually gives us a, an example of him doing exactly that when he was speaking with Moses in Exodus 34. It says this, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, Moses, there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, gracious, uh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God reveals himself to Moses and says, Hey, hey Moses, I don't... I don't know if you fully understand who I am and what I'm like, so let me explain it to you. Consider just three things that he says, statements about what he says he is like in this passage. First, God is merciful, gracious, passionate, or patient, loving, and compassionate. 
God has just saved the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, not because of who they are, but really, actually, in spite of who they are. And how does Israel thank him? Well, they respond by doubting whether he actually cares for them. They respond by doubting whether God is actually going to follow through in or with his promises, and they build idols to worship. And how does God respond to them? Does he wipe them out? No, he is gracious. He is merciful. He is loving. He is compassionate. He is patient. The people of Israel have tested the will of God, the patience of God, and they continue to test it and test it and test it, and God keeps his promises because God is a loving and compassionate God. Second, this uh, passage reveals to us that God is righteous and that God is just. While God starts by describing himself as as merciful, compassionate, patient, loving, uh, uh, gracious, he, he reminds Israel that he is also a just God. Those who sin will one day answer for their sins. God will no, by no means clear the guilty, means that while God is merciful and while God is gracious, that mercy and grace, grace do not contradict his righteousness. His righteousness matters deeply to him. And, and if we're honest with ourselves this morning, God's righteousness matters a whole lot more to him than it does to us. And that was true for the Israelites in that day. Because sin is primarily an, an act against God, that means God's righteousness is at stake in our sin. Now, God is certainly merciful and gracious and loving, but he is also righteous and just and holy. Third thing we can see from this text, God is sovereign and all-powerful. He is sovereign and all-powerful. The fact that God is able to make such a declaration reveals that he is sovereign. It means that he is in charge, that he is the one who can pardon sin, that he can punish sin because that is who he is. All of humanity ultimately answers to him. What's more, God is all-powerful. He's able to actually follow through with his pardon and his punishment. God doesn't say, hey, I'm in charge, and, and you know, I, I'd really like to pardon the, the repentant, and I'd really like to punish the unrepentant as a sign of my love, a sign of my, of my righteousness, but, you know, I, I just can't do it on my own, so can you guys help me out? No, God is all-powerful. He is sovereign. This text tells us that God is loving, he is righteous, and he is sovereign. And you might, be, might say, well, what, a, what does this have to do with a discussion on hell? And the answer is everything. Everything to do with the discussion on hell. That God is loving means that he has made a way to avoid hell. That God is just or righteous means that he will not compromise his righteousness for the unrepentant. And that God is sovereign is a reminder that while people may freely and consciously choose to reject him, God is the one who is in charge. God is the one who is in charge. The Bible answers the question, who is God? It also answers our second question, what is sin? What is sin like? Again, let's just consider three brief statements about sin from the Bible, little uh, or, or no commentary on each of these. First, when we describe sin, sin is simply missing the mark. It's missing the mark. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God has a standard, his glory, and all of us have fallen short. It's missing the mark. Second, sin is crossing the line. 
When the Bible oftentimes describes sin as a trespass, this is oftentimes what is in view, Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So just like a fence defines a person's property, God's word defines what is good and what is bad, what is wrong and what is right. And all of us have crossed that line. All of us have broken that, uh, have trespassed over that line. Sin is breaking through the boundaries of God's good creation. Third, last one. Sin is breaking God's law. Breaking God's law. 1 John 3. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is breaking God's law. Consider this. Every single time that we sin, we are making a value statement. We are making a value statement. Whether we recognize it or not, we are making a statement that says, I value what I think more than what God thinks. This is a form of idolatry. Sin is saying, you know what, I matter more and what I want matters more than what God wants or what God has asked me to do. Sin is a form of rebellion. It says, I don't think that God's way is best, so I'm going to go my own way. R.C. Sproul, a late theologian, described it this way, sin is cosmic treason. It is rejecting against God. It's rebelling against God and his plan. It is thumbing our noses up at God's rule and saying, no thanks, God. I think I can do it better. That is what sin is in God's eyes. All sin, not just the bad ones, is falling short of God's standard. It is breaking out of his good created order. It's rebelling against him and against his his law. And as we see in Scripture, all of us are guilty of it. All of us are guilty of it. So, with this biblical view of of God, that he is loving, righteous, and sovereign, and this biblical view of sin, that it is missing the mark, it is crossing the line, and that it is a rebellion or that it is breaking God's law, let's consider five statements Uh, or responses to this question, how can hell be just? How can hell be just? Uh, I think it's first important for us to recognize that we fully, don't fully grasp the rebellious nature of the human heart. We don't fully grasp how rebellious the human heart is. Many of us oftentimes operate under the assumption that if someone were to end up in hell, they would quickly repent, or they at least try to repent because of how awful the Bible describes it as. But that actually doesn't square well with the testimony of Scripture. Could it be that hell is eternal because the rebellion of those who are in hell is also eternal? The Bible gives us example after example after example of those who have hearts that are so hardened against God that even when they have the opportunity to repent, in the midst of experiencing God's wrath, they refuse to do so. Just consider Pharaoh in the story of the Exodus. He experiences plague after plague after plague, judgment from God's hand. And what does he say? You say, I'm sorry, God, I I repent. No, he hardens his heart. He, He stubbornly refuses to repent. 
The book of Revelation describes something similar. God begins to bring judgment down upon people, and yet people refuse to repent in the midst of their hardship. Revelation 16, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, and yet they did not repent of their deeds. People experience anguish of judgment here. They're they're gnawing on their tongues because of their anguish, and yet instead of repenting, what do they do? They curse God. They curse God for his judgment upon them. If the hearts of humanity are so hardened in rebellion that they curse God throughout eternity, throughout eternity, does it not also make sense that the punishment for that cursing, for that rebellion against God through all time would also last for eternity? We don't fully grasp how rebellious, how how deceitful, how wicked the human heart is. Second thing that I don't think we fully grasp is the awfulness of sin. The awfulness of sin. Why is that? Because we're sinners. We're sinners. We don't fully grasp. We're surrounded by sin. It's the air that we breathe. We are inoculated to its awfulness in God's sight. Consider uh, an illustration from the theologian Christopher Morgan. He says it this way. What would be the best way to evaluate the horror of murder? Would it be to survey hundreds of murderers on death row and to inquire their opinions as to the proper extent of their punishment? Well, of course not. On the whole, the penalty would be minimized by them. Why? Because they are offenders, not the offended parties. It would be much better approach to interview hundreds of mothers, fathers, wives, husbands, friends, sons, and daughters of the murder victims. They would be able to provide a much more reliable account of the horror of murder they would also be able to give a much better understanding of its corresponding penalty. Why? Well, it's because they are the ones affected by this evil. In the same way, it seems that we humans will always tend to underestimate the sinfulness of sin. We will have a propensity to view our sin as an accident, as a blunder, as a mistake. But unless sin is viewed in light of God's holiness, and that will only occur through divine self-revelation, it will never be seen as evil, wicked, hateful, and worthy of damnation as it really is. We offenders will fail to measure it aright. Only the offended God knows the full extent of its awfulness. You see, we don't fully grasp how awful sin is. When people sin... We are affected by that sin, but God is the primary object of sin. That's what David has in mind when he is repenting, he's confessing his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. He says this in Psalm 51, Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. How on earth can David say that he has sinned against God alone? If you were to ask Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. He would not say that. David's statement here reveals something that is incredibly important for us because sin is a rebellion against God, because it is is thumbing our noses up at his law and saying, I want to do things my way, not your way, God. Because of these things, because it's this idolatry where we choose ourselves over God, because sin is, is breaking away from his created order, then all sin is ultimately and primarily against God. 
The reason why we don't believe the punishment fits the crime of eternal punishment for our sin, it, it, there, there's, there's two ways that we can reconcile that in our lives. We can either say, I see eternal conscious punishment in the Bible, and, and because of that, that makes no sense to me, and therefore I'm going to conclude, God, you're just not fair. That's one option. Or we can say, I see eternal conscious punishment in the Bible. That makes no sense to me. But I trust God is fair. And therefore, I must not be able to understand or fully fathom the awfulness of my sin. We are only either going to doubt that God is fair. Or we are going to say, I must not fully understand how awful my sin is in God's eyes. Which will we choose? Third, we don't just fail to grasp the awfulness of sin. I think we also fail to grasp the goodness of God. The goodness of God. How would you define goodness? Oftentimes, I think we define goodness in terms of, of what we receive or what we experience from other people, from the hands of others. In other words, I think that oftentimes when we, uh, if I were to think that you were good, it is because of what you have done for me or how you have acted toward me. And if God judges my sin, well, that's not a good thing for me. But that's not what the Bible paints a picture of when it comes to God's goodness. We saw from Exodus 34, God's goodness doesn't contradict his judgment. It actually necessitates his judgment. In other words, it would be unjust of God to not address evil. To use another illustration, this one from Eric Raymond. Let's suppose there is a judge who is hearing the case of a corporate executive who has embezzled millions of dollars and cheated his co-workers out of their life savings and pensions. The judge listens to hours of testimony from weeping and ruined victims. The facts of the case are undeniable, but after all has been said, he declares the executive to be not guilty. And pronouncing this judgment, he smiles warmly at the defendant and says, congratulations, you are free to go. And we can imagine this scene. The court would be in an uproar, and eventually the judge would, judge would be asked very hard questions and likely removed from office. But consider the even greater outrage when upon being asked why he let the despicable criminal go, he said, because I'm a good judge. Nobody would agree with the judge's assessment. Ask the man guilty of the crime, is this a good judge? And he may say yes. After all, he was good to me. But ask the victims of this man's actions, and the answer would be a resounding no. If we truly understand what it means for God to be good, not just in how he treats us, from a, but from a more objective place, if we recognize that that might not mean good news for us, is God a good judge? Can God be trusted to be fair and impartial in his judgments? To fully grasp the goodness of God means to accept that God's judgments are fair and just, even if we are on the wrong end of them. Fourth, we do not fully grasp the glory of God. We don't fully grasp the glory of God. Earlier, we read this very famous passage from Romans chapter 3. It says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We speak about the glory of God frequently in this church, but I don't think we fully grasp, nor will we ever be able to fully grasp, the greatness, the vastness of God's glory. God is the most glorious being in the entire universe. 
I think we could all agree with that. God is the most glorious being in the entire universe. And God's glory means many things, but for our purposes this morning, let's just say that when we, mean, when we talk about the, the glory of God, we, when we talk about God being the most glorious being in the entire universe, what we mean is that God is the most valuable, that God is the most precious, and God is the most important being in his universe. That's what his glory means. His glory is infinite. His worth is infinite. It is beyond comprehension. And so, any offense against that glory is also infinite and also beyond comprehension. Let's, let's use another illustration, this one from a, a man named Denny Burke. Uh, I want you to imagine, and this is kind of a gruesome illustration, so I apologize in advance. Um, imagine you're out for a walk in a park, and you see someone sitting on a park bench, um, and, and you can't get a good glimpse of what they're doing, um, but, so you stare a little bit longer, and then you see that they have, in one hand, they're holding down a grasshopper in the, on the bench, and they actually start to pull the legs off of the grasshopper. Now, what would you do in that situation? How would you respond? You might find it a little bit odd. The action's a bit cruel, but, you know, we swat insects all the time, and so you, you might just walk on by. Now, imagine that it's not a grasshopper, but it's a frog. What would you do in that situation? Is it more disturbing? Well, sure. Maybe you divert your eye contact. Maybe you walk away a little bit quicker. You just walk past them quicker. But what if it's not a grasshopper? It's not a frog. What if it's a bird? Would you say something to them? Or would you just, again, divert your eyes and walk away quickly? Would you call the police? What if it was a puppy that this person was doing this to? You may not intervene yourself. You, you don't know what this person would do to you, but you certainly would call the authorities, wouldn't you? What if it wasn't a puppy, but what if it was a baby? Would you intervene and stop them? Almost certainly all of us would. Even at great risk to ourselves, we would intervene, fight that person in order to protect the child. Now pause and consider. What is the difference between each of these different scenarios? Why is it that we would walk by when it's a grasshopper and do nothing, but do everything in our power to stop the person if it was a child? Why such vastly different responses? The actions are the same, right? I think the answer is obvious. The difference is the value of the one being sinned against. The value of the grasshopper is greater than the value of the child. And the more valuable the creature, the more serious and awful the crime is. So now let's bring this back to the glory of God, which we said includes God's infinite worth, his infinite value. If God is a grasshopper, if God is a frog, then of course hell is an overreaction. But if God is the most valuable and most precious being in the entire universe then we can't begin to grasp how awful sin is against him. You see, we don't, we don't believe it, hell is just because we don't fully grasp how glorious God is. We see it, we see it just as, as a bit more, he, God, you're just a little bit more important than I am. But, not, but honestly, not all that much more important than I am. But if we increasingly grasp how glorious and beautiful and important God is, then we will begin to fully grasp the justice of hell. One person sums it up this way. If we don't see sin as an attack on God's infinite worth, then we will not see hell as a just response. 
If we do not see sin as an attack on God's infinite work, then we, worth, then we will not see hell as a just response. If we have an improper view of God, that God, you're not actually as glorious as you claim to be, or if we have an improper view of sin, you know what, God, it's not actually as bad as you're saying it is, then of course we're going to think that hell is unfair. But when we begin to see sin as awful as it truly is, and God as glorious as he really is, then we begin to understand. And that leads us to our fifth statement. We don't fully grasp God's commitment to his own glory. We don't fully grasp how committed God is to his own glory. No being in the universe is more fully committed to God's glory, to exalting God, than God is. Consider the Old Testament. You shall have no other gods before me. God demands that people worship him. They worship no one else besides him because God is concerned with his glory. Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God will not share his glory with others, whether an idol made by human hands or some created being. His passion is for his glory, and it's so great that he will do anything to preserve it. Again, from Isaiah, for my sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should, I, how should my name be profaned, my glory I will not give to another. Why is it that God brings salvation to those who are in need? It's because he loves us, certainly. But here we see another reason. God is doing it for his own sake. God has made a promise, and he considers his name, his val- he values his glory so much that he's not going to go back on that promise. He's not going to make himself into a liar. Now, that might strike us as odd. It might strike us as, as prideful. And, and absolutely, it would be prideful or sinful or wrong if there was something more glorious than God or more worthy of praise than God. But just as we saw, there, there isn't. I want you to imagine you're at a lake and you're swimming and then you start struggling and you start to drown. And you're in desperate need of help and there are two people standing on the shore, two people that can, can help you. One is a three-year-old. Now, she has just started putting her face in the water, thank you very much, but if she doesn't have her floaties, well, she's a liability in the water, let alone to save anyone else, even with floaties. The other one, on the other hand, is this Olympic gold medal swimmer at the peak of his or her career. You get to choose who it is. Now, who do you want saving you? The three-year-old who needs their floaties just to stay afloat for themselves, or the person who has made a living in the water? The answer is obvious, right? So imagine if you heard a conversation between the Olympic swimmer and the three-year-old where the, the Olympic swimmer says, hey, you know what, I don't want to come across as prideful and full of myself, so why don't you take this one? That's exactly what is, is in view here. God exalts himself because he knows there is nothing higher or more worthy of exaltation than himself. He knows that he is the greatest good for you that you could ever have. And to not be committed to his own glory would make him guilty of idolatry. To make him guilty of exalting something else besides himself. To not be utterly committed to his own glory is to give us the three-year-old rather than the Olympic swimmer. We don't fully grasp how utterly committed God is to his glory. And while it may make us uncomfortable, the reality is when it comes to hell, every single day that we recognize hell's existence, it is a sermon 
declaring the infinite value of God. Of how glorious God is. Of how utterly committed he is to his glory. It is a statement showing how committed he is to protect his glory from those who would defame him or lessen him or exalt themselves over him. Us. Each and every one of us. And so as we close, I think that this is the one thing I want us to take away this morning. It's simply this. Hell is a sermon declaring the unspeakable horror of sin and the infinite worth of God. Hell is a sermon declaring how awful sin is and how glorious God is. Last week we saw that Jesus himself oftentimes speaks over and over about the reality of hell. He speaks about it more than anyone else in the Bible. And so often when Jesus mentions hell, he does so as a warning. He uses it as a motivation for obedience. He simply says, is is temporary sin really worth the infinite horror of hell? And this morning's focus teaches us something similar. When we look at hell, when we consider hell, if we allow ourselves to truly see it as a declaration of how awful horror is, uh, how awful a, a sin is in God's eyes, then how could we possibly fathom sinning against him? What if we stopped looking at sin as a, as a minor inconvenience or a bad habit and started seeing it for the awfulness that it truly is in God's eyes? At the same time, what if we use hell to help us consider the incredible glory of God, that he's not just some nice guy that we can always talk to, we can make pleasant small talk to when we see them at the grocery store, the person that we always send that Christmas card to every year. But instead we see the goodness and the glory of God as something that describes how utterly other he is. He's far more holy, he's far more beautiful, he's far more righteous, far more glorious, far more worthy than we could ever fathom. How could we do anything but live our lives to bring him glory? This morning's sermon really boils down to two questions. Do I truly fathom how awful my sin is? And do I truly grasp how worthy God is of glory. And if I can answer yes to both of these, it's life-changing. It will motivate us to live lives of obedience and honor to our risen king. As uncomfortable as it may make us, hell declares both of these things. It declares how awful our sin is, and it declares how glorious God is. And as I mentioned last week, hell is one of the only two places in the Bible where we can get, a simil- where we get this picture of how awful sin is and how glorious God is. And the other one is the cross. Both hell and the cross display to us how awful sin is. That God just couldn't pass over it. That God couldn't just ignore it, but that he had to do something about it. And at the cross, we also see how glorious God is. That God had made a promise to ransom people from every language, nation, tribe, and tongue. And he did it even though it cost him his son. Hell is a sermon declaring the unspeakable horror of sin and the infinite worth of God. And the same thing can be said about the cross. The reality of the cross is a sermon 
declaring the unspeakable horror of sin and the infinite worth of God. And if we truly hear, if we truly understand, our lives would be forever changed. So are we listening? Let's pray. Lord, we come before you guilty of minimizing our sin, of exalting ourselves, of minimizing you. Forgive us, God. Help us, because we know you're a gracious, merciful God. Help us to see how glorious you truly are, how beautiful you really are, how wonderful you really are. That you say whoever calls upon the name of the Lord would be saved. Help us to do that, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.